welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our Christmas edition. It is November's monthly roundup with a little bit of December because we're a little bit later this month with all the stuff going on that's been happening. But it is Christmas time. The trees are up. The lights are glowing. But it's a slightly different Christmas this year. It is. We've had what it can only be described as the most remarkable year. And it's still going on with COVID-19. Everything has changed. But there again, there's some things which have not changed, such as crowding in emergency departments, ambulances queuing up outside and lots and lots of patients who don't have COVID in our emergency department. So it's all different. It's all the same. It's all busy. That's the bit that slightly makes me smile. The idea that this year the NHS will be overwhelmed and that's unusual. Uh, I I really remember last Christmas and the Christmas before being not dissimilar to this and that perhaps COVID is just the tipping point that makes people realise that this is what our departments are like most of the time in the winter period and winter seems to last for at least 11 and a half months a year. Yeah I do love those two weeks in July they're absolutely fantastic but you're right the the only thing I would say is that the COVID thing has really put an additional complexity onto us in terms of infection control because we just simply can't when I say can't, but I know it's happening, we really shouldn't have patients with COVID diagnoses sat on corridors infecting other patients and other staff. So there's there's a degree of complexity and risk out there this year, which is new, even more than usual. And as if by magic, Simon, it's almost as if we planned it. That brings us on to our first post in November. We may as well crack straight on. And this is a post you wrote based on a lecture by Simon Mardell about why infection control failures could kill our patients and colleagues. Yeah, so Simon Mardell is a bit of a hero of mine. Um, he's an emergency physician, but has done an enormous amount of humanitarian work. Has been awarded an OBE, has worked in places like Kosovo. He's worked in Africa dealing with Ebola. He has a huge amount of experience, both practically and academically. And he came to us and came to the Royal College with concerns that what we were seeing in departments, and I think this is true, is that people were becoming less compliant with their PPE measures. Is that tiredness? Is it just apathy? Is it just exhaustion? Possibly all of these in a combination, depending on where you are and who you are. And what he talks about is the fact that this is not unusual. It happens in most infectious disease outbreaks around the world, that people do get a period of complacency and then things get bad. And they get bad in quite a long time period. You have infection control lapses, which means that you get a few infections, but not everybody um, will go on to develop severe complications of something like COVID. So you get infections, but it takes a while for those infections to manifest themselves, to spread to other people who might be more vulnerable, who then end up in hospital, who then end up on intensive care. The PPE discipline that you break today is what kills one of your colleagues five or six weeks later. And he put this in very, very clear and quite emotive terms. It's definitely worth a a look at the video. It's quite short, but it's up on the website and you can have a see for yourself. But I think it's a really important point. What you do now, we can't necessarily see exactly the manifestation of our our lapse protocols now. We won't know and it'll be difficult to get the link between what happens in six weeks time and the present day. And that means it's really important that we've got to be vigilant. We've got to buddy up with people. We've got to make sure people use their PPE. We've got to avoid things like crowding, which is a catalyst for the spread of infectious diseases. I think there is some complacency and we're all tired, aren't we? But this is a really important reminder. And I'm as complicit in this as others in that I have at times just not been as good as I should be. And it's a really valuable reminder. And as seniors, we need to role model this. If we're not wearing gowns and everything else we need to, even for our level two PPE, when we're seeing patients in the normal part of the department, 
then what must our junior doctors think and what must other staff in the department think? So seniors have to lead the way. And of course, this is the one bit we have control over. We don't have control over families at Thanksgiving in the US or families at Christmas in the UK or around the world, but we can do our little bit. So it is worth watching that video. It may well change your practice. And it's definitely something we need to think about because if I remember rightly, Christmas is a tricky in emergency departments, but January and February is often worse. And this may be where things really kick off. I think you're right. I think a lot of us are quite worried about January. Stay safe, folks. Next up, you just mentioned that the Code of Zero episodes are now open access, which is great to see. All those that have been coming out from what was Smack, they're now able to be viewed and listened to. So that's worth mentioning. Simon, you've been involved with a couple of those, haven't you? Yeah, and they're really good, actually. They're getting really, what I think are pretty good speakers together to talk about the four major themes of CODA, which, of course, you remember are CODA Earth, CODA Cure, CODA Educate, and CODA Ethics. And I was involved in the CODA Educate one, where we talked about different ways that education is taking place across a whole range of different communities, not just medical ones um, or nursing or clinical ones, but also in terms of education of the general populace. So they're free, they're available, they're pretty high quality stuff, and they're a precursor to what will happen with CODA in 2021. Can't tell you exactly exactly what that's going to be, but I know it's going to be rather exciting. So I I do think that I'm really looking forward to getting back to conferences where I can go and meet, share, learn, educate and develop. And gosh, it would have been great if we'd managed to get face to face this year. Do you think we will just go back to normal or will this change education forever? Will there be less of an appetite to get on an aeroplane? Will we even be able to justify that? Or will we just have to be sitting at home in front of our computers? How do we balance up that we've coped without it and don't necessarily need it anymore? Or or do we need it? I think there'll be a, a blended approach in the future. I think there will always be the opportunity and the benefit to meeting face to face to have those those personal discussions and to brainstorm and get ideas and cross pollinate all of those kind of buzzwords that we sort of chuck around about conferences. And of course, when we talk about learning things which are practical skills, you can't do those remotely. On the other hand, the opportunity to learn in a remote fashion is really good. It's much more inclusive of people who may struggle to go to conferences due to financial pressures, family commitments, caring commitments, all of those kind of things. So there's massive advantages. The other question I always have, and I could go down a rabbit hole on this one, is we know from some of the stats that I've seen that we've increased the number of people who participate in online conferences, but we don't know whether they're learning. We don't know whether it's just on in the background and they're just making a cup of tea. Mind you, we don't know whether people are learning in the lecture theatre in a face-to-face conference either, but just making something more available doesn't necessarily mean that more people learn or that more people change or that more people are inspired. We just don't know that yet. I suspect it's a bit of a mix, bit of a blend. Going forward, I envisage in some of the conferences I'm planning, uh, there'll be a face-to-face component and people who want to go to that, great, they can go there. And they can also do things like workshops where you need to be there in person, but there'll also be an online component for people who can't travel to keep it inclusive. It's a fascinating idea, isn't it, about what do we learn when we go to a conference? What do we learn in a teaching session? How do we learn as adults? And I've become quite a devotee of the Key Lime podcast, which I would recommend personally. They go into the literature of a lot of these things. And there is more to it than just put on a conference, have some fancy slides and and hope people get something out of it. And I think people are becoming more choosy about where they go and what they need. The employers who are paying for this stuff are also getting more demanding about seeing results. It's not enough now just to put in a study leave form and a two-line reflection to say you had a jolly time. That's fair enough. Those of us who run conferences or organize education need to make it as effective as we can. And those who take that education 
need to get things out of it. It's got to be high quality. It's got to be high impact. Conferences these days are so much choice and competition that they've got to be right up there to survive. I think people also have to appreciate that if you put on a good online conference, there are costs involved. There has been a bit of a, an idea that if you're running a big conference, we should just deliver it for free. And that's possible um, in some places where you've got sponsorship um, or people have paid subscriptions to their you know, national society or whatever. But actually putting on a conference, I've put on a few big online conferences now, there's a hell of a lot of work in the background, almost as much as putting on a real one. Not quite, not quite, but in terms of stress levels, actually just as much. It was always the discussion about what what is FOMED, wasn't it? It was free open access medical education, but free to whom? And it really was free to the consumer. And I know you, Simon, very generously bear many of the costs that Emlyn's have and other people need sponsorship to keep their podcasts running or their blog sites. But this all does cost money. And even if it's not financial, it costs time. And it's about giving that up. And the energy required is extreme and should not be underestimated. And so, folks, if you are attending an online conference, please remember that there's people in the background working really hard to make it as good as they possibly can. We must move on. But the last person I must mention here is Mike Cadogan um, out there in Perth, who's done so much to support St. Emlyn's over the years and so many other podcasts. You know, He's the epitome of somebody who is selfless, altruistic, doing an incredible amount of work in the background to make this sort of thing happen. So thanks, Mike. Absolutely. Let's move on to the next post. And this is a clinical journal club post about a subject, oh, my paediatric practice. As we di- diverge more adults and peds, I have to work even harder to keep up to date with my paediatric practice. And that's why I'm so grateful that we have people like Natalie May on the team. And this was about petechiae in kids, something that probably scares us all, because how do we spot that one, two in maybe a year or even a career where it's going to make a real difference? Interestingly, one of Natalie's previous posts on petechiae and purpura in children is one of the most widely read posts on our whole site. So it's clearly something which chimes across the board with nurses, doctors, paramedics, all of us. You see this kid who's got in front of you and they've either got petechiae or purpura on them. Is that serious? And specifically, most commonly, is this somebody who's got an invasive meningococcal disease? Because that's the big one that none of us want to miss. We all know a horror story of somebody or have heard of a horror story of somebody who missed the rash and the child went on to have a, an adverse outcome or even die. And it's it's terrifying, actually. And when a patient comes in with this rash into the ED, our nurses are brilliant at spotting these rashes. They will alert us to go and see the child. You go in, you have a look at the child, and then you've got to make a decision about how invasive do you want to be with this child? Do you want to say, right, okay, there's a rash. Let's go for it. We're going to put a line in. They're going to get IV antibiotics. We're going to admit them. Or are you going to wait and see? Are you going to do some blood tests? Are you going to observe them? Are you going to do what? And it's really complex. You don't want to just go sticking needles into every child and putting loads of antibiotics in them. But similarly, you really don't want to miss this disease. You're right in that the petechiae post that we've had from Natalie in the past is our second most viewed, over 140,000 views. So this is clearly something that people want to know about and they're really bothered about and want to learn about. And the post is excellent, leads you through, talks about some different guidelines. Obviously, we're always talking about sensitivity and specificity, and we'll be talking about that even more as we go through this month. But more and more, an understanding of those diagnostic characteristics is really important. I remember sitting in stats lectures at med school thinking, really, why? Why? And yet it becomes a absolute core of my business now. There are, but there's some really interesting statistics in this in this paper. So this is a, a collaboration with the Peruki Group, the Paediatric Emergency Research in the UK and Ireland group, done some amazing work over the last few years. And essentially what they did is they went out to a number of emergency departments, 37 of them in fact, and looked at kids presenting with um, a rash 
suggestive of meningococcal disease, perhaps, um, and a fever. They followed them through and they used a variety of different algorithms to find out which was the best in terms of sensitivity and the best in terms of specificity. First really interesting fact in this one, the one that I've taken away, is that of those 1,513 patients who were screened, of which 1,329 were eligible, a total of 19, as in 1% of them, had meningococcal disease, but just under half of them were given IV antibiotics. So that tells you a little bit how we're handling the risk at the moment and how difficult it is. And in terms of the different guidelines, they looked at NICE guidelines, they looked at some London guidelines, Nottingham guidelines. They found that the guidelines all were really sensitive. So they picked up everybody because basically it was like, do you have a rash and a fever? It could be meningococcal disease, give them some antibiotics. Specificity was quite low. The London one was probably the best with a specificity of about 0.36, which is down there in D-dimer sort of world. For those of you who don't like D-dimers, it's not a particularly specific algorithm. Bottom lines from Natalie, a couple of things to take away as well. Purpura are really bad. There's a big difference between petechiae and purpura. Purpura, bad news. Other things to think about, follow your local guidelines or national guidelines if um, you can. If you don't have those, have a look at the London one. It's on the site. It's pretty good. Things like the NICE guidelines are pretty blunt, actually. So maybe they should be refined. Fortunately, reassuringly, meningococcal disease is really rare. Simon, just let's do a quick reminder, because we're going to talk about it again in a moment with relation to the uh, everyone's favourite 2020-2019 virus, sensitivity and specificity. So you very quickly, it's become part of your vocabulary, so you know exactly what you mean. When you say the sensitivity is good for this guideline and the specificity is poor, nail it down again. What do you actually mean by that? So the sensitivity means that if you go through with these algorithms and it says treat as meningococcal sepsis, then you capture everybody who's potentially got meningococcal sepsis in that. Maybe there's a 100 people that you test, uh, 1% of them got meningococcal disease. Your sensitive test will pick up all of those 1%. It'll pick up loads of others as well, perhaps, but you haven't missed anything. On the converse of that, if you have a sensitive test and you get a negative result, it means you probably don't have the disease. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. That's the snout, isn't it? So sensitive, a test which is so sensitive, it rules out the diagnosis. The problem with the specificity is that what happens when you've actually got a positive test? So it comes back as positive. How likely it is that this patient actually does have the disease in question? And a low specificity means that actually a lot of those patients quite frankly, don't have it. We'll come back and talk about that again in a moment, I'm sure. And we talk about it a lot at St. Emlyn's and maybe we are just nerds. Uh, Although I've decided being a nerd is cool, um, as I've decided to tell my sons as well, that nerds are cool. And talking of nerds, onto Dan Horner, not not a link at all. Uh, Talking about the turn, I won't say turn network, but of course, that's uh, one of those things where I'm repeating the last letter. It's the Trainee Emergency Research Network, which uh, Dan, as the college professor or, or one of them, is very much involved in. And this post was not actually written by Dan, although it was put on the site by him, but written by the turn fellow currently, who is Rob Hurst. And this is really just encouraging everyone to try and get involved in research where possible. Are you still managing to get trainees involved in research up in Manchester, Simon? You are, really are a leader for this, I think. Uh, well, Rick Body is uh, is obviously our big um, research lead here, so all kudos to him. But yes, we are getting um, trainees through. We've got people like Thomas Shanahan at the moment who's uh, working with us. We've got Charlie Reynard, Anita Jafar. I could go on. Some fantastic trainees up here in the Northwest. Everything got put on hold for COVID, but now we're rebooting those studies and getting things going again. But we desperately do want or turn definitely do want trainees to get involved in research more and this opportunity on the website detailed is for them to prioritize what we're going to be looking at over the next few years 
I mean, Turn's done amazing work so far around subarachnoid hemorrhage, around the tired study. They need your voice. So you can go onto the website, you can follow the links to the Delphi, and then we can get your ideas and prioritize what the important research is. Bill's on the work from the James Lynn partnership that we featured on the blog a few years ago, led by Jason Smith down there in Plymouth. How is it, Simon, that we can manage in our specialty, which is very clinically led and when managers want activity from us they want us to see patients that tension between service and and learning how do we keep getting trainees and consultants who are able to do research which isn't just in their own free time because they fancy it and they're good eggs it needs to be part of job plans doesn't it i'd love to be able to have some breathing space to think a bit harder where does that come from? You're the CPD lead for the co- college, which is all great for education, but we, we need to do the research as well, don't we? Yeah, I'd quite like some PAs for research too, because I don't actually have any. We need to encourage those people who have the curious mind to get involved in research and planning. I don't think you need to be a full-time academic to do these things. There are ways that you can contribute. And the ongoing COVID trials at the moment are a brilliant example of that. There's no reason why anybody who's listening to this podcast who's working in the emergency department as a doctor can't do their a good clinical practice and get onto a delegation log to recruit into trials like recovery. So there's lots and lots of opportunities out there. But I've always felt, and we've talked about this before, that research, academic, medicine, critical appraisal are core skills to any good emergency physician. I appreciate there's difficulties with time and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, we must encourage the next generation and we've got some incredible people out there. And that leads us into our last quartet of papers and posts that will take us through to the end of this six-week cycle. And these are all about coronavirus and different aspects of it. Let's take them in turn. And one is about therapy, a journal club about convalescent plasma in COVID-19 patients. Simon, I guess the end of this question, let's go to the the final bit is if you had COVID, would you want convalescent plasma? What does this tell us about this BMJ paper? BMJ paper done in India, 39 hospitals looking at 464 adult patients who were randomized to either convalescent plasma or not. Basically, they found no benefit. Now, there's a couple of reasons why that might be. The idea of convalescent plasma is, you know, makes a lot of sense. You know, somebody's got a viral illness, you give them the convalescent plasma with antibodies in it, antibodies damage the virus, patient gets better. I get that. The problem is, number one, in this study, lots of the convalescent plasma didn't really have high levels of antibodies. Unlike in the recovery trial in the UK and some other trials around the world, where they're testing the amount of antibody in the convalescent plasma to make sure that it's at high level. Maybe in this study, they just didn't get enough antibodies. The second reason is more fundamental, I think. And it's what we said a lot, is that you don't die of COVID-19 viremia. You don't die of the initial virus infection. You die of the immune response, the host-mediated immune response that comes 10 days later-ish. Convalescent plasma isn't going to make naff all difference to the immune response issue at 10 days. It might make a difference to the initial viremia. But if you've already been triggered to develop your um, immune response later, I don't see how this is going to work because it's effectively acting as an antiviral. And we've already seen the antivirals, azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine, lipinavir, etonavir as well, of course. Convalescent plasma now, they have not shown a benefit. I'd like to see a better trial than this. And there is one coming because we've randomized patients to convalescent plasma in the recovery trial. So I'll wait to see that to be absolutely sure. But at the moment, open label wise, I don't think it's probably going to show a benefit, sadly. That all does make scientific sense to, to even to me. It's just nice to believe that we're going to be able to find treatments, isn't it? And recovery are still recruiting. And I, I think I heard that they're looking for men who've had COVID-19 
to actually step forward and offer to donate plasma, you're part of the recovery. Simon, are you aware that that's still happening? Yeah, so the, the convalescent plasma is recruited through the NHSBT, uh, blood and transfusion services, and then put into the trial with the antibody titers. But yeah, the, the, my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this particular bit, my, my understanding is that um, older men create um, higher levels of antibodies, which is why we want the good stuff. You don't want to get some, you know, weak antibody solution. If you're going to give it, you want to give high levels of antibodies. It's so nice to hear that for once us men are good at doing something physiologically, because it's always felt to me that we're, we're very much second class citizens in that way. So go us with our convalescent plasma. Now, COVID testing, Rick Body is, dare I say it, a national, if not international expert. We're absolutely delighted to have him as part of our team as ever. And on our group WhatsApp, there are occasional messages that go to and from Rick to try and get our own questions answered. But here he's tried to put together a post to talk us through exactly how it works. And this was accompanied by a a podcast, which is really worth a listen. Yeah, most of the information here is on the podcast. We've just put some brief notes up there with regard to the different types of tests out there. But if you're wondering what the difference between a PCR test is, a LAMP test, a DNA nudge test or a lateral flow test, one of which I took this morning, which was the lateral flow test, then all of the information is in here, together with the information on the UK um, platform trial, which is the COVID-19 platform trials under the Condor envelope, and specifically the Falcon study, which is the ED one. But basically, Rick is running the Condor program, which is testing all of these new types of tests across the country to find out whether they work or they don't. Because quite frankly, quite a lot of them have got relatively low sensitivities. But as Rick explains on the podcast, they're still useful to do. And in fact, this morning, I probably can't tell you exactly what it is, but this morning, um, I've just agreed to be part of a trial um, using a a brand new sort of test, a brand new sort of test for us to develop, looking to detect COVID-19. Lots of information coming out there. Rick is one busy boy at the moment. And that is a useful podcast because it not only talks about the sensitivity and specificity that we've mentioned, it talks about prevalence of disease and pretest probabilities and all of these things we have to take into consideration when we're testing wide parts of the population, many of whom are asymptomatic and how those positive and negative tests may reflect and how that may affect schooling and employment and all of those things. This is not straightforward. And it does require big brains to do that. And Rick is undoubtedly one of our big brains. Again, about therapy on COVID-19. Simon, we, before we started pressing record, we tried, I tried to learn how to say this. And now I've lost it. Toxilism, toxilism, or as Dan Dan put his, who's really part of his title for this blog post, actually, is Tokaluza maybe. Get it? Yeah, he's a, well, he's a very clever boy, you see. Okay. So this is Dan Horner talking about um, another drug which is being put into recovery. This one, the reason why we're talking about this now, because recovery hasn't um, submitted, is that a couple of weeks ago now, the, I can't remember exactly what it was now, but I think it was NHS, one of the big NHS bodies came out and said that we should be using tocilizumab in severe cases based on data from the REMAP-CAP trial, which is a study of ICU patients. Lots of people, including ourselves, had a look at that and went, ooh, I'm not quite sure, mate. I think that's actually a little bit early for us to be sure because it was just a suggestion. It wasn't absolutely um, proven fact. Tell you a little bit about what ticlizumab is, despite the fact it's difficult to say. If you work in rheumatology, you know what it is. It's an IL-6 antagonist. And we all know what IL-6 is. Let's not go there. Do you think if we move on from this bit? No, I'm there. I'm good. I'm good. Cytokines, I love them. Crack on. Go on, interleukin-6 then. Yes, I, like I agreed, I know what that is. Crack on. Yeah, I, 
crack on. So it's been used in rheumatology for a long period of time because it's quite a really potent anti-inflammatory. It's a humanized monoclonal antibody, which does lots and lots of clever things to T-cells, B-cells, monocytes, fibroblasts, antagonizes that pro-inflammatory state. Tocilizumab has been used in the past for patients with severe ARDS, which is why it came to the attention of people interested in the management of patients with a COVID pneumonitis. Remap Kappa suggested there's a, there's a benefit, but there are other trials out there which have shown that we're not quite so sure about it at all. Following the, the national directive to use this in patients, a number of people, including the Intensive Care Society, the Recovery Chief Investigators and others, did a sort of a mini meta-analysis, really. And we've got the link on that to the site that shows that actually the evidence for tocilizumab in this group of patients is not great as yet. And so we're cautious about it. We think it should be in clinical trials. We think we should still be recruiting to it, but it hasn't reached the threshold that we believe for the standard of care. But that would, in our scientific hypothesis of how COVID-19 is affecting people, this is getting to the end that we believe is causing the damage. Is that correct? The 10-day inflammatory response, this may start to blunt it. And actually, this could be a treatment that's effective in the most severely unwell because it's hitting that part as opposed to the viremia bit we were talking about before. Absolutely true. If we know already, the only drug which we know is effective in terms of mortality in COVID-19 is dexamethasone. But dexamethasone as as an anti-inflammatory is a sledgehammer, just bashing everything down really. So can we be more focused? Can we be more specific by using a drug such as uh, tocilizumab? I think this is the way forward. And there's actually quite a number of other drugs that we're looking at at the moment as well in phase two trials through the Accord platform, if you want to Google that, looking at phase two trials to look at other more potent and more specific anti-inflammatories. I mean, tocilizumab, fantastic drug. You You can't create any CRP after this. So you can't, once you've been given it, then you just don't see a CRP rise no matter what happens for the next month. And you really don't want to give this drug to somebody who's got a bacterial infection at the same time. Dexamethasone isn't exactly a drug without complications, but you've got to know what you're doing when you're using this stuff. There's so many things to try and keep up with, isn't there? Condor and Falcon and Recovery and, and Priest and Paint. Honestly, it's, it's, I'm just glad we've got bright people like you and other sites not dissimilar to St. Emeline's helping us keep up because there's so much going on. And When we come to the end of 2020, I think we will see this as a turning point, as we've said, for science and science being part of our everyday work. And that has got to be a good thing. On to the final post of this six week period into December. This was out just a couple of days ago from you, Simon, about the PRIEST trial, another one of our acronymed trials, similar to recovery. And this is about trying to risk stratify people, but in the emergency department. Lots of authors on here that people will know, Steve Goodacre, Tim Harris, Kirsty Challen, all those sorts of guys. And this is more good stuff about how we might be able to work out who is going to get poorly and who isn't. Yeah. And this is a trial which has been stuck on the preprint servers for a few weeks now. This study was set up as a hibernating trial that was prepared for the next flu pandemic. That was the painted trial. COVID came along, they rebranded it and tweaked it so that it could be worked for COVID, and they named it the PRIEST study. So essentially what they've done is they've taken patients coming to emergency departments, looked at what data they have on them, so their presenting symptoms, signs, their physiological scores and things, and then decided which is the best way that we can risk stratify these patients about whether or not they're going to need ITU, invasive organ support, NIV, or whether they're going to die. But the key thing here is that this is a group of patients who are recruited in the emergency department. It's the group of patients that we see in front of us when they arrive in the ED. And the reason why I mention that is because this is this study, which is a great study, is stuck in the preprint world and is not yet published. 
And yet, Isaric, the 4C score, which many people will now be familiar with, based on the Isaric data from, what is it, 34,000 patients who were admitted to hospital, keyword, keyword there being admitted, is now being used in EDs as a screening tool to decide who comes in and goes home. And from an EBN perspective, that worries me because when you're developing and validating a test, you should do it in the population in which you're going to use it. And clearly there's a difference between patients who are in hospital and patients who are in the emergency department who you might want to discharge. Now, there'll clearly be crossover. There'll clearly be lots of common data between those two cohorts. But actually, the PRIEST study is looking at tools which don't require things like blood tests. They don't require things like investigations or they don't require a chest x-ray. So they're very much an ED-based tool. So yeah, Isaric 4C looks great. Lots and lots of positives out there. It's a fantastic piece of work. But what I really want to see is whether or not things like Isaric 4C works in ED patients. Because they've not done that in the in pre-study yet. I'm not sure if they can do. I've written to the authors to ask them if they can. Not had a response as yet. Of the ones they did test, the news two was probably the best. Reasonably sensitive, but pretty poor specificity, sadly. So yeah, good sensitivity with these scores, but not great specificity. And that, Simon, brings us to the end probably of our 2020 podcasts and many of the blog posts that have gone before. It's been a heck of a year and we will not probably speak to you all again, I would doubt, until 2021, which I think is possibly the optimistic year of my life. Everyone has wanted to think that 2021 will be different. Do you think things are going to change? Do you think COVID's going away? Do you think life will get back to normal? I don't think life will ever be quite the same again. I think uh, there's a few things, and I'm not going to get political on the podcast, but just towards the end of this year, things are starting to look up. We've got vaccines coming. There's a few things changing around the world which might actually be heading for the better. And I can see light at the end of the tunnel. I'm feeling fairly, I'm knackered. I'm tired. I'm fed up with COVID. But I do actually think we've got something to look forward to. There's always something to look forward to, I hope. And things will get better. They will be better in the end. And from St. Emily's, we hope you have a happy Christmas, whatever version that will take this year, whether that's a distanced Christmas with friends and family on screens or whether that's in your house, please do heed the advice of your local jurisdiction if you're in the UK or abroad and and pay attention to that and think about what we've talked about with us still keeping on top of this thing. There will be more Christmases and next year I am hoping that we will all go completely crazy and have a jolly fun time. It's always great to speak to you on the St. Emily's podcast. If you did like it and you enjoy it, then please hit those buttons on the subscribe and the liking things that seem to be so important to podcasters, although we still are not sure why, but it would be a lovely Christmas gift to us just to feel the love from you all and keep us going into 2021. Uh, thanks for joining us. We've had more people than ever listen to the podcast this year. We've had many more people uh, read the blog this year. St. Emily's is on a high it's thanks to the feedback that we get. It's thanks to the enthusiasm of the team. So thanks everybody for listening. Thanks everybody for producing. And yeah, we look forward to a fantastic 2021. There will be much more to come from us. And as ever, we're very grateful to you all. Here's to a happy Christmas and a restful, peaceful new year. Whatever 2021 will throw at us, I'm sure we'll be ready. Take care, everyone. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.